The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2021 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at conycindy.com. Let's get started because I don't want to go over time and back everything up or be in a rush. Um, my name is Zach Rogers. This is my family here, my beautiful wife, Sheffy, and my two kids. Riz and Raleigh are great. I was thinking as I've been listening to Derek talk, I wish I sounded cool like Derek. Like no matter what, I started thinking like he could be saying anything right now. And I would think it sounded cool, but I just have your generic, ignorant East Tennessee accent. And so you guys can just bear with me, just see past the accent. Listen to what I'm saying. Don't let what I sound like keep you from paying attention. Um, I just want to kind of point something out about the two numbers that you guys put on your paper. And that is that, it, or if you or in your head or wherever you have them, is if you'd been sitting here at the New Year's conference 20 years ago, and you'd have been a technology talk, which there weren't those 20 years ago, and the speaker would have asked you to write those two numbers on your sheet, you would have probably written the numbers zero, zero, right? No screen time, no pickups. And that's really pretty astounding, but it's probably a lot more astounding to me than it is to you, because at that exact same time, the, the day I got my first smart, my first cell phone in year 2000, that's the exact same time your parents got their first smart, their first cell phone. And that's also about the same time most of you were born, which means that for your entire lives, you've never known a world where people didn't have cell phones. And for your entire adult life, you've never known a time when you probably didn't have access or know that everyone was using smartphones. So those are, the, those are the phones that I had personally from the time I entered high school until the time I finished college. Those are my phones. As you can tell, they're not that awesome, but they got better and better than the first year I was out of college or the second year, I got my very first smartphone. And so I kind of lived through a lot of different you know, technological changes. And then my freshman year of college is when Facebook came out. So Facebook used to look like this. YouTube also came out my freshman year of college. And so you can tell that it looks way less cool than it did 20 years ago. Um, or I guess at this point it was 15 or so years ago, whatever that is, 16 years, 17 years. Um, I really point this out for this reason. People my age, even though there are people older and wiser and have seen more things, just so happen to live an extremely pivotal point in history where there was like a massive technological explosion and things changed extremely quickly. And the thing that's unique about people my age that work for Campus Outreach is, is they have never left this environment, right? We, we, we came here as this was changing and we've never left. And so we've gotten to watch slowly as college students have changed over the last 20 years. And my take has been and continues to be um, that something is, is terribly wrong. I'm sorry probably to say that that's the case. I really do. I have felt that way for a long time. And I'm not trying to embarrass anybody or this is not any way to belittle, but I would just say that the amount that people your age talk about anxiety and depression and being overwhelmed, being overwhelmed or needing counseling or thinking about suicide, the amount of just reactivity and anger and sadness and really irresponsibility and you know being fragile all that kind of stuff is something that like a lot of people my age began to notice and we were kind of like what's going on and i would just say experientially for me 
Um, what I experienced by watching college students was validated in 2017, where Jean Twinge wrote the book iGen, and when she it was it was a huge research project, and she came out and she said this: "It is not an exaggeration." So if you think I'm exaggerating, she says I'm not. It is not an exaggeration to describe iGen, that's you, as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. And I would say this, over the last 10 years, thinking about technology has become somewhat of a hobby of mine, trying to read about it, think about it, tame in the lives of other people. I have read literally thousands and thousands of pages about technology over the last decade. I've read Christian authors, I've read secular authors, I've been a lab rat for myself. How do I function with technology? I've given a million, my first technology talk was 10 years ago. In 2011, I've been thinking about this for a really, really long time and tried all kinds of things. And I would just say, like, to summarize the literature at this point over the last 10 years, because this is really when it blew up and it really blew up again in 2017. Um, most secular people don't believe anymore that smartphones, this, the cocktail of smartphone plus social media is a cool new technology to help you keep up with your friends. People. People don't believe that anymore. What people recognize is, is this is virtually destroying your mental health and even has the potential to destroy the fabric of our entire society. That's what the academic literature is saying at this point. And so if you're not like up with all this or think about this that often, I just want to share with you 15 things that technology has been accused of. Again, I'm going to give you a packet when you walk out of here. So if you think I'm a nutcase, well, Go read all the books. I'm not, I mean, I've only put like 3% of the information in that packet, but it's a good 3%. It'll get you started. Um, here's 15 things that technology's been accused of. One, transforming our society. Two, changing our neurochemistry. Keeping us inside and away from physical activity. Providing accessible and anonymous porn that has fueled addiction in both genders. Significantly increasing anxiety, depression, and self-harm. Shortening people's attention spans. Lowering the user's ability to hold a conversation. Lowering users' empathy. Contributing to car accidents, injuries, and deaths because people cannot put their phones down when they're driving. Increasing narcissism, the belief that everything is about you. Everyone needs to know what you're eating and what you're doing and what's going on in your world all the time. Increasing hypocrisy, pretending to be someone online. Uh, making an image of yourself that people can see that's just not really who you are or how you really feel. Tempting others to be to envy other people and then be depressed when their life doesn't match up with the people they see Missing misinforming people through fake news Overwhelming people with bad news or just terrible comments that people make on the internet just being exposed to that on a consistent basis Overwhelming users with options This and this is all new like this is apart from all the technological discussion that was happening around TV and video games We're even talking about that. That's a problem in and of itself. In sum, again, Jean Twenge, um, she has spent her whole academic career studying generational data, and she says this at the end of her book, in all my analyses of generational data, some reaching back to the 1930s, I had never seen anything like it. And what she's talking about is the statistical jumps as soon as the smartphone was released, and anxiety, depression, suicide, all that kind of stuff. And I would say this to you guys, before some of this stuff hit the printing press, it was becoming the norm for people about my age and definitely older to make kind of some kind of nasty comments about your age group. People are just like, dude, like what's going on? These people are fragile, these people, all this kind of stuff. And if, if I could sum up the diagnosis at that point, I would say it like this. 
People looked at your generation and said, these people are doing less with more stress. They do way less than we were doing 20, 30, 40 years ago, but they're way more stressed than we were at the exact same time. And I began to ask myself the question, could that really be? Could it be that you guys are really just so fragile that you could do so many less things than we were doing 20 years ago but be way more overwhelmed? And my answer is no, it's not possible. There's no way that you're doing less with more stress. The only answer can really be you're doing more with more stress. Let me, let me illustrate. If you would have come to me in 2006 and you said, Zach, man, how would you describe yourself? You say you're bored, active, busy, overwhelmed, anxious, at the end of your rope. I would have said to you, 2006, I'm a sophomore in college. I would have said, I feel busy. And, and, and sometimes I feel overwhelmed. I'm trying to do a lot of stuff and you know, but definitely, definitely busy is what I would say. And then you're to say, hey man, you see this thing right here? This is called a smartphone. I want you to take this from me. And I want you to keep doing all the same stuff you're doing. Keep doing all the stuff you're doing. But here's the thing. About 150 times a day, I need you to stop what you're doing and look at this thing for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, a minute, three minutes, 10 minutes. And then about every five minutes, I want you to do that. And then, but, here, but here's the thing. When the whole week's over, I need you to have accrued about 20, 30, 40 hours a week on this thing. I, I need you to really invest some time in it. I, I would have been like, well, 20 hours a week, that's a part-time job. 40 hours a week, that's a full-time job. People give their lives to that. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, man. That's what I'm asking you to do. How do you feel now? I would have said, bro, I'm at the end of my rope. And that's you guys. That's what's happening in society. If you're wondering, I just solved it for you. That's what's going on. And that's why sociologists, computer engineers, software designers, all these people that have formerly been associated with Silicon Valley, they're all saying, these are secular people, these are not Christians, they're going, get off of it. Just get off, like get away, stop it. Not fast it, not moderate it, but get off it. That's what secular literature is saying. There's a book I read recently by a guy named uh, Jaron Lanier. Lanier, I think is actually how you pronounce his name. Um, deep in Silicon Valley, he's the guy that's supposed to be like the father of all virtual reality. He wrote a book recently, 10 Arguments for You Deleting Your Social Media Account Right Now. And he is absolutely not joking. You can watch YouTube videos and stuff of him. He's all over the place. Um, fascinating book. Will blow your, blow your mind. You know, here's, here's Bill Mao on HBO. He said it in a way more funny way. He says this. The tycoons of social media have to stop pretending that they're friendly nerd gods building a better world and admit they're just tobacco farmers and t-shirts selling an addictive product to children. Because let's face it, checking your likes is the new smoking. But here's the real problem. The problem really isn't secular literature on the, t on the issue of technology. The problem, it seems to me, really has become Christian literature on the subject of technology. And my point is not to group every Christian in the same, so no, it's not the case. There's certainly a spectrum. Um, but I have read a ton, thousands of pages actually, of Christian literature, and I would probably sum it up like this. This is the, the Christian narrative as it concerns technology. Point one, technology is good and can be used to glorify God, or it's at least neutral. Two, if you were more godly, if you had less sin in your heart, then you could use technology in moderation. And then three, don't abandon technology. Just be more godly. You could eventually redeem technology, and that'll be really awesome. And I would say, just generally speaking, I agree with that. Like, 
broad stroke, like, yeah, that's true-ish. But like there are some significant nuances that need to be made. And so really what I believe is, is this broad stroke story has led Christians to be pretty naively optimistic about how they can handle technology. And this has been the case in my own life. This has been the case in the people I've discipled. All kind of, I just watched this play out. And I would just say, I think that res the results are relatively alarming. This narrative is not proving to produce a lot of great fruit in people's lives. And I want to explain to you why I think that is. And so what I want to do during this time is not say everything that can be said about technology. We would be here for like 10 years. I shook a freaking like 100 page document down to this talk. And so there's so many things that could be said, but I've decided what I want to do is spend my time saying what I think are the two most important things to clarify about winning in technology. And those things just so happen to be the two most poorly explained ideas as far as I can tell um, in Christian literature. And so I call them myths. I don't know if myth is a good word. Things that need to be nuanced. I don't know the nice way to say it. Um, but here's the thing. This is the first myth, if you will. And that's this. Technology is a good gift from God, or it's at least neutral. Okay? Like, that's truish, but it's, it's not very nuanced for sure. And so let me give you an illustration that my uh, not just beautiful but intelligent wife suggested to me. If you guys knew me better and you could be within the confines of my home, you'd realize all the good things I say in public. I probably stole from her and then forgot about it and thought I came up with it. And this is just one of the ones I'm sure, like, she told me this. And so she said, you know, it's like this. In World War II, when the German, the Nazis invaded France, they really didn't want France to revolt. Like, they didn't want the people in all the little towns to go crazy. And so what they did is, is they basically banned the BBC, which was like this news, you know, program that was getting funneled into France. And no one would listen to that. And they started their own radio stations where they spread a bunch of propaganda to French people that, hey, Things here in France are really good with the Nazis in power. Like, we, this is going to be great for us. France is thriving under the Nazi leadership. And so don't do anything stupid. Just enjoy life. Just hang tight, right, until the Nazis eventually can carry us all off, you know, and put us in concentration camps and such. And so what I want to focus on in that little illustration in history is the French radio. Like, let's take that as, a, as an analogy for the modern smartphone. If you could somehow take that radio and you could separate the Nazis who controlled what was on the airwaves from the French radio, then it would be neutral. It might even be good. You know what I mean? And under the control, but here's the thing, under the control of the Nazis, those radios were used for death and destruction. It used to keep, it was, they were used to keep people docile long enough to where they could really be there and take things over in a significant way. And here's the problem. Most Christians that I'm aware of talk about iPhones and social media like they were French radios during the Nazi occupation of France. Like it's pretty simple, and this is how the narrative goes. If the radios would have been under good influence, like the BBC, for example, they would have been used for good. But if they'd been under bad influence like the Nazis, they'd be used for evil. See, technology is neutral. It just has a lot to do with who influences it. And I would say that's all fine and good if the influence we're talking about with the iPhone is you. But here's the question. Who is the primary influence in the way you use your smartphone? Is it you? Theoretically, the answer is you, right? Who else would influence it? It's in your pocket. It's your thumbs that press the buttons. Who else could be influencing the way you use your smartphone more than you? But it's not the case. 
practically, the answer is Silicon Valley. You didn't build it. You didn't design it. You didn't code it. You didn't put the algorithms in it. You didn't build any of the programs that you're running on it. This is way, 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 way more complex than radios during the Nazi occupation of France. This is way different. Let me give you a quote from a former employee at Google, Tristan Harris, in a 60 Minutes episode about brain hacking. He says this, there is always this narrative that technology is neutral, and it's up to us to choose how we use it. This is just not true. It's not neutral. They want you to use it in particular ways and for long periods of time because that's how they make their money. Or take it from Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on your photo or posted or whatever, and that's gonna get you to more contribute more content. And that's gonna get you more likes. And that's gonna get you more comments. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. What I want to do is kind of give you a spectrum that will sum up kind of a lot of the technological debate over the last really 50 years. And I think it's the, the quickest way to sum up a significant amount of information. So this is a spectrum I want you to understand. On one of the spectrum, you have simple tools. An example of a simple tool is like a shovel. You, if you want to dig a hole, using your hands is kind of lame. Shovel's pretty cool technology if you want to dig a hole, okay? And so, but the shovel doesn't beep at you, it doesn't talk at you, it doesn't ask you questions, say, hey, hey, pick me up, pick me up. It doesn't do any of that stuff. It's just a simple tool. I don't know anyone who's saying, man, down with the forks, you know, down with the knives, down with the shovels, like they're terrible technology. I don't know anyone who's saying that. The message behind simple tools is, is this. You use me and I help you. That's how simple tools work. This is a type of technology. All technology is not the same. It's really the takeaway here. The second thing, we're going to use the term powerful tools. That's not exactly how, if you're, if you're a reader in here, Neil Postman, Marshall McLuhan, like they're the people who are thinking in this realm. And so this is where the technological debate has raged for the last like 20 years. Neil Postman's Amusing Yourself to Death came out in 1985. This is really where he was thinking about. He says this. Sorry, he doesn't say this. I'm not going to quote him. I've had a thousand quotes in here. I've cut out. Scratch all that. Here's where we are now. Here's the deal with powerful tools. Is that powerful tools are the kind of tools that are like simple tools, but they're so powerful that you can't use them without being indirectly affected by them. Okay, so you don't, they don't intend to change you, they just indirectly end up changing you. And so the example from history, at least that amusing yourself to death takes up, is the idea of the TV. And so not only did TV change the very message, like the information that actually came over the airways, but it actually began to change the people. They, became, they didn't read, they didn't think clearly anymore is what he would say, but it also began to change culture. It's like it used to be that when you came home, you would all gather around the centerpiece of the home, the dining table or the fire where you could get warm and hang out and talk to each other. But now, with the advent of the TV, when you get to your house, your entire living room is now built around this device that talks at you. And so instead of going home, hanging out with your family, talking to each other, everyone gathers around this device that sends information to you instead of communicating information to one another. But not only that, now, which is different, we're all seeing from the TV and we're doing this all at the same time. So it really 
is a game changer. And so this is Powerful Tools. The kind of the message behind Powerful Tools is this. You use me and indirectly you are changed, okay? You use me indirectly, you change, culture changes. If you're a part of any culture that uses these tools, it's been changed. This is why the Amish are like, pass. I'm not trying to go there, okay? And then on the very end of the spectrum is this idea of singularity. And this is probably maybe the newest concept if you're not like all into reading about technology. Um, if you've seen the Terminator movies, you know what I mean? Or iRobot, or I've never seen Transcendence, but supposedly it's in there, or the movie, the Wally, the Pixar movie. Um, here's kind of what's going on. Singularity is about this hypothetical point in time in which kind of technological growth becomes so uncontrollable and irreversible that it results in unforeseen changes to humans, um, human civilization. And the reason why on my spectrum, it's, a, it's not a point, but it's like a phase on the spectrum is because people in academic circles have now begun to realize singularity isn't necessarily about just like this apocalyptic point in time when like technology all of a sudden wakes up and like points nukes at us. The lead, the lead article in this December's Atlantic magazine is, is titled this, The Singularity is Here. And it's in your packet and you can read all about it when you get your packet. You know, but they're saying the exact same thing that Jaron Lanier's saying, that the social dilemma's saying. They're saying, hey, this is the deal with technology now. It's that technology itself, apart from humans, is now acting on you. It is now watching you, monitoring you, and then it's analyzing what it receives back from you, and then it's learning how to react to you better to keep you stuck to it longer. This is, a, this is not the French radios in the German occupation. And so this, this is what's really scary about it. What's scary is, is while you're thinking, I use technology. I use TikTok, for example. The truth is this. That technology is saying, I use you. You don't use me. And I change you to my ends. That's what the whole thing is about. And you'll understand this more in a minute. And this is the biggest and most important thing that's so difficult for people your age to wrap your mind around. You can't remember what it was like before this was the case. But just take a look at Facebook and YouTube and Netflix, like when, when it first came out, right? Like, it's stupid looking. It's not binging. It's not suggesting videos to you. It's not saying, hey, did you notice that these people became friends? Hey, check out this thing. You're free. It, doesn't, it doesn't do any of those things. It just sits there. It's, it, it's at best like a shovel. It's cool. You know what I mean? It's like a really nice shovel that when you use it, it makes you feel good. It's kind of like that, but that's it. But just think of this one example, okay? When, the, when Facebook came out, there was no photo albums. There was no news feeds. There was no comments. There was no likes. But even when Facebook got photo albums, one, nobody had cool cameras because our phones couldn't take good pictures. So unless you're the kind of person that carries a camera out all the time, you weren't uploading pictures to the internet. But then, once they got news feeds, and then they had likes and all that, sorry, before that, you could like look at people's pictures, but they don't know you looked at them. You can't like them or respond to them. But, can, but consider now that you have likes, comments, replies, news feeds. Now, algorithms can suggest to you pictures that they know you'll be interested in from former usage that you'll like. That person will see the like and comment back, and then you'll reply, and you'll go back and forth for 20 or 30 minutes. And now, and, and you would think like all that stuff is there because I like makes me feel good. It's like maybe that's true, but the truth is, is all that stuff is there because it helps you stay longer and longer and longer. These technologies are not an ad, they weren't added to make things more awesome for you. They were, they were added to keep you there 
longer. As Tristan Harris says, again, this is in The Social Dilemma, which I would highly recommend that you watch. If something is a tool, it's just sitting there, waiting patiently. If something's not a tool, it's demanding things from you. It's seducing you. It's manipulating you. It wants things from you. And we've moved away from having a tools-based technology environment to having an addiction, a manipulation-based technology environment. And that's what's changed. Social media isn't a tool that is just waiting to be used. It has its own goals, and it has its own means of pursuing them by using your psychology against you. Here's the truth behind this myth. The truth is, is that even though technology itself isn't inherently evil, the purposes and the goals of these particular technologies are not neutral. They're not even good. And if you don't think really critically about how you use them, they use you, regardless of what your goals are. And they take you where they want you to go, regardless of where you want to go. Myth number two. Winning the tech battle is simply about learning moderation. And so what I've noticed, even though I don't see a lot of people making this exact argument and just connecting these two things, but it looks exactly the same. It's the exact same argumentation. It's really just this. Christian technology is a lot like alcohol use. It's like this. If you use it in moderation, it's great. But if you, if you, you, know, if you use it too much... It's bad. That's kind of how the iPhone is. And like, you know, the assumption is, is if you could get your heart right, if you were more godly, then you could use this awesome. But you're just not godly enough. And so you need more teaching about your heart and how you love yourself and how you, all this kind of stuff. And then eventually you'll be able to use technology awesome. That's kind of how it works. And I would say, I agree. I think if Jesus had a smartphone, he'd use it well. That, that's great, you know. But there's some significant amount of nuance needed here. Uh, I'm going to give you three reasons why technology, and when I say technology, I mean the cocktail of social media plus smartphone, um, why it's nothing like alcohol. It's, it's nothing like that. This kind of thinking is not helpful to you, and you'll continually fail when you think about your phone like you think about alcohol. One, statistically speaking, the vast majority of people who use alcohol are not addicts, and they will never become addicts. They'll never become alcoholics. That's just what statistics say. But statistically speaking, Almost everyone who uses smartphones with social media show levels of addiction. And that's a game changer because all of a sudden we're not talking about technology being like alcohol anymore. Now technology is a lot more like tobacco, right? Instead of nicotine, it's dopamine. It's addiction. Two, and this is crazy and you need to make sure you lock this in, in the tech world. Sorry, in the, well, here's the deal. In the tobacco world, you're the customer. In the, in the alcohol world, you're the customer. But in the tech world, you're not the customer. You're the product. Let me, let me show you something. The net worth of the largest American companies in these markets, here's the first one. Anheuser-Busch, largest alcohol company in America, net worth one point, or $115 billion, okay? What do they sell? Alcohol. Philip Morris, $139 billion net worth. What do they sell? Tobacco. ExxonMobil, largest American company um, that distributes oils. Like, what do they sell? They sell oil and then eventually gas. Facebook, what's it worth? $927 billion. What do they sell? You, your attention. You ever paid a dollar to Facebook? Never. You've never paid them $1 because you're not the customer. You are the product. They sell your attention that you give them to third-party advertisers with the promise that if you let us do this to them, we will, they will buy your stuff. 
They will do what you want them to do. You are the product in the technological world. And Facebook is worth a lot more than all those companies combined. Cal Newport, the author of Visual Minimalism, great book sitting out there on the out there, it says this. If you use these devices, it's not a casual decision. You're instead waging a David and Goliath battle against institutions that are both impossibly rich and intent on using this wealth to stop you from winning. And if their net worth is any indicator, they are winning. Three, you can't escape the thing you're addicted to. 8% of people who try to quit smoking make it. 8%. And you know what those people do? They put as much distance between them as tobacco as they can imagine during the time they're trying to quit. If you have a smartphone, the thing that you are trying to get unaddicted from is also the thing that you carry in your pocket 24 hours a day, seven days a week, talk to your mom on, GPS to your new favorite restaurant you just found on Safari. Do you, what do you think your chances are of moderating this? You're just kind of rolling this back a little bit. What do you think your chances of being like 8% of people are able to quit smoking, and they don't use a cigarette as a pen all day, right? Because if they did, they would smoke it. And if you carry a smartphone around with social media on it, and you're thinking, I'm an addict, but I'll just kind of make some moderate changes, I'm sure it'll all go away. That is absolutely not the case, and that is why people continue to fail. The key, the key issue here, really, is addiction. And when you're dealing with addiction, the whole conversation changes. There's really two kinds of commitments that addicts make. The first kind of commitment is one that pretty much always leads to more addiction. And that's the one that says, I don't really want to do this, but I'm not really going to like do anything drastic to change my relationship with this. I just kind of hope through making a couple little changes, things will get better. That's one kind of, that's one kind of decision an addict makes, and those people stay addicts. But there's another kind of decision an addict makes that typically leads to victory. I'll illustrate it with this story. A handful of years ago, me and some guys got together with a pastor here that's the speaker of the New Year's Conference, well-known, you know, respected pastor. And I said, hey, listen, I want you to pretend that me and these guys sitting here are guys in your congregation, young men, and we're like, hey, we really want to try to, we're trying to get off porn. We want to stop using it. We're addicted. What, what would you say to us? And that guy just kind of looked down for a second, and he just looked around at us around this table. And he said, let me ask you this. This is what I would say. I would say, are you ready to do anything? Are you ready to get a dumb phone? Are you ready to get rid of your laptop and only use the internet in the library? Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to do anything? He just got real dramatic, and he just looked at us. And then he said, because if not, shut the hell up. And he said, I'm so tired of talking to people who are addicted to things. Who are like, yeah, I'll kind of make a few changes. Like, get out of my office. He's like, you have no hope. The only way to change addiction is to make radical steps. And he went on to drive that home over the next 15 minutes. It was really insightful. I still remember it today. My point is not that porn is just like social media. Porn is both worse than social media and better than social media in different ways. I'm just saying addiction is addiction. So here's the truth. You will likely never win against technology by just reading a book or making a few tweaks, having the goal to moderate. That's just not going to work. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked for like probably 98% of people that have tried it. And that's why hopefully many of you are here because it has worked. And hopefully this is helpful. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he says this in 1 Corinthians 6. 
He said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be enslaved by anything. I won't be dominated by anything. I won't be mastered by anything. And my fear for your generation is that you are enslaved and mastered by your phone and that you can't stop. Paul says in Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The scripture has things to say about making the best use of your time. It commands you to think about your time. And your flesh is like, no, let's just pee it all away, screwing around our phones. And your flesh loves that. And you make provisions for your flesh by what you allow to be on your phone and how your phone is set up. And I would just say you really need to think about this. And so this is my take. When you're dealing with this kind of technology, this is non-shovel-ish technology, and you want to change those technology habits, you have to change the technology it's not a shovel. You have to, in other words, turn it back into a shovel. You've got to get the Nazi out of the radio. You have to change the technology itself if you want to win. It's a radical situation, and it requires radical action. So I'm just going to tell you what I do. I don't know what else to say. I'm going to tell you some things that I've done for a long time. Some of them I've done for a short amount of time. Most of them I've been doing for a while. And, you, and my point is definitely not do what I do. And my point is think about this. I have one social media account, becoming human. I decided I'm gonna keep this thing going. So I've got a Facebook account. That's my social media account. I have no social media on my phone. I don't have any email on my phone. I don't have anything like that on my phone. And that is a huge deal. If you just said, I'm just not gonna use this on my phone. I don't have 10 social media accounts. That would radically change your life. So I don't do that. Safari, it's an app. Obviously it's the internet. You can get to anything, any social media platform, any, we could surf the internet forever or whatever. I have access to Safari on a daily basis for five minutes for one reason. I've decided that Safari for me is a tool to get information in a bind. I've decided I need about five minutes to get any information that I want. Five minutes will be just fine. And then it locks me out. Not like, hey, five minutes is up. Ignore it. Not that. Like a code that I don't know that someone else has. You can't be on Safari anymore. And then I have to stop. Okay. The next thing I do is, and here's the thing, this is what I would suggest to you. There are things for sure that we would disagree about on your phone that's valuable. You would say, I think this is valuable. I would say, I don't. It doesn't really matter. You can think whatever you want. The point is this, is that what you have to decide is, how long do I need to use this app to make it valuable to me and to keep it from becoming of something that takes over my life? And as soon as you know what that number is, you just say, I need it for this long. Billy, put the code in. Now, every day I get to use it as a tool, and it doesn't take over my life anymore. It's really simple. That's how you keep this from taking over your life and make it a tool again. And so here's the thing. The, on my phone, the only visible apps are the following apps. I'm not going to read them all. You can see them. That's what my phone looks like in my pocket right now. Not a lot of cool stuff on there. Um, and here's the, But there's other apps on my phone. Those aren't the only apps on my phone. I have other apps, like a banking app, so I can deposit checks. I still have photos and a camera, an insurance app, the app store, a handful of other tool apps. I don't want to see them all the time. I just use them every now and then. I don't know what they're called. I can pull it down and search and look for them when I need them. But it's really helpful. If you ever read the book Atomic Habits, when you remove something from visibility, it radically changes your ability to stop doing it. So make it, uh, make it what's the word I'm looking for? Invisible. Make it invisible if you want to stop something. So I remove that stuff off my phone. I have no notifications on my phone or badges. There's no notifications on anything except for calendar 
and task management because those are tools that their design is to notify me when I have to do things. So of course, I need them to notify me because that's what the tool is built for to enhance my life. When you, the reason I don't have badges on is because when I go to my phone to pick up the app I want to pick up, I don't want another app to go, hey, hey, look at me. You didn't come here to pick me up, but pick me up. Look, I've got stuff you need to see. I don't want that. I, mean, I don't want to know about any of that. I pick up my phone when I want to pick it up for the reason I want to pick it up for. And so when you go to my text, every individual text conversation is muted. And so you'll notice. I've taken 15 minutes and just gone through and muted everyone individually. So here we go. I don't know what that is. That's the network directors. This is my wife. No mute. You see how that works? And so you, 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 when you got somebody that needs to contact you, you just take them off mute. The reason why Do Not Disturb doesn't work for majority of people is because they get nervous. They start thinking like, well, what if, when, what if this person's trying to contact me? What if I'm waiting for this information? It's like, well, there's a really simple answer. Mute everybody and then unmute the people that you need to hear from when you need to hear from and then mute them back. Unless they're your wife, then you leave them off mute. And so here's the deal. The big point is this, just this, this is the only thing I'm trying to communicate, is just I want to pick up my phone when I want for what I want. I don't, my phone doesn't use me, I use it. I decide what it does, it doesn't make decisions for me. In the last three weeks of my life, I've picked up my phone for eight hours, 8.75 hours a day, or something like that. And I've picked my phone up 52 times a day. I've probably picked my phone 500 times a day. Today, you know what I mean? Like, this isn't some legalistic, like, I can't hit 75 or I'm evil. The point is just, I have goals for myself. Like, I don't want to pick up my phone more than 50 times a day. I just think, dang it, and I, I screwed it up. But that's what was on my phone I picked up, take this picture. And so, I just don't, I, this is just not what I want to happen. Um, uh, here, here's the thing. I'm not saying that you should do exactly what I've done. What I'm saying is, is I just want to give you a tangible example of how to live out practically these theories. You can choose to do whatever you want, but I'll tell you this. You know what the number one barrier to you guys thinking about what I'm saying and making any significant change? The fact that you won't get off your phone long enough to think about it. You won't get off your phone. You're going to go out and you're going to start playing on your phone again. You're not going to think about what I've said because that's the way this thing works. Here's the deal. I want to give you just a tangible example of something 20 years ago um, that will help you, I really do believe. And you guys are probably going to think, man, this guy's just coming here to brag about himself. Maybe so. I love myself probably more than my social media shows because it doesn't exist. And so, but here's the deal. Let me have my social media moment up here, and you guys can use my bragging so that you can have a concrete example and be like, okay, what were things like 20 years ago? And how do I stack up to this? When I was in college, I had hard majors, I had mobile majors in college, and I graduated with a high GPA. All I'm trying to say is, I went to class, did my homework, I studied for tests, I completed a regular work-study program for a scholarship every single week, I consistently worked out three to five times every single week, I consistently met with God every day for one to two hours, probably more like two hours, for I'm, I'm betting 99% of the time throughout, throughout the time I was in college. I memorized, apart from that time, 700 verses from the Bible, word perfect, that I could quote anytime, anywhere. I read 57 books when I was in college, which comes out to about one book a month, and I'm not talking about textbooks for school. I invested untold hours in building relationships with people in order to share the gospel with them. 
I was discipled by a guy who met with me for two hours every week. And then another, at another time during that week, we would meet for two more hours as a group in our discipleship group. I discipled five men who I met with every week for one hour for each of those people and had a two-hour discipleship group with those people every single week. I never remember watching one show the entire time I was in college. And again, it was almost impossible. You'd have to like find where it's on TV and then show up at the exact time. There's just thing is Netflix. You have to send that stuff through the mail. Um, and so it's not... It just didn't happen. I bet this is probably way overshooting it that I didn't watch 10 movies when I was in college. It just wasn't something I was going to do. And it wasn't that I didn't want to. I just didn't ever think about it. I was busy doing a bunch of other things. And you can say, man, you're a liar. You know, but I don't know. You can think whatever you want. Um, but what I'm talking about was really pretty normal for most of my friends. Like, this is pretty much what they were doing, too. And I would just say this. Like, you could be taking that screen time. And you could be investing it in something just God-glorifying and productive. And you could love people in ways that are better than likes and comments on photos. You could take that time that you've got on your screen and make a phone call and say something meaningful. Walk over to a person's dorm and actually meet with them in person. Talk with them face-to-face. Like, I can't even imagine all the things that you could do with the time that you're likely logging on your phone, but everyone is spending every second on their phone, and they think it's completely normal. But it's not just abnormal, it's manipulation. It's not, it's manipulation from outside sources. And I would just suggest this to you. I'm around college students all the time, and I, I have this thought that comes to my head often, and it, it goes something like this. I can't imagine what God would do with you if you gave him the hours that you give your phone. I just can't even imagine what you could accomplish, like what could happen in your life, your family's life, the people around you, if you said, God, I'm giving you this time that I've been investing in, you know, trivial things. And that's really my prayer. My prayer is that you would leave and you would actually contemplate, like, what might God do with me if I gave him that kind of time that kind of attention in my life. And that's my prayer for you guys as we leave. So thanks a ton for coming. I hope this was helpful. I have a packet up here. I'm going to try to get to the back to no one move, and then you'll get packets as you leave. So thanks a ton. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at conyc.com.